Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights, part two of my interview along with Rich Klein of our longtime friend and hobby stalwart, Mike Kramer. In fact, I, I got a, I still don't have the book. I got an uh, email from Amazon saying your book is being further delayed. I hope that's because Mike is selling so many copies. I sure would like to read it and I, and I will as soon as I get it, but already got a, a bounce back from uh, Shane McNew saying he, he enjoyed the interview and I guess he must follow pretty closely because he said, I can't wait to hear more from this interview. So perhaps I'm predictable in that with my 15 minute format when I've got a really interesting guest like that. It's going to be more than 15 minutes. So this is the second part of the interview. Thanks sponsors, Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication, ComC.com, Burbank Sports Cards, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Heritage Auctions, Hug Scott Auctions, Tops, Panini, Upper Deck, and Pacific, just to throw you off. So thanks again, Mike, and thanks listeners, and be sure to get his book. Here it is. You've won awards for your miniature work. Yes. Have, you, have you found more joy doing the miniature work or more joy doing sports cards? When you win a World Expo gold medal, only a handful of humans have done that. That was really rewarding at the time. Getting a book publishing com contract right out of the gate was a big one. But if I go back and look at how much fun I had when Nolan Ryan pitched his seventh no-hitter and how that series of cards we did back then, just started mind-boggling going through the roof as far as sales. That was rewarding. When we got our football license in 91, that was gigantic. So I've had a series of just phenomenal, fun things. And that's actually why I was able to write a book. And somebody would think it's interesting enough to publish it. It's because of all those fun things I did and, and rewarding things. We kept a little bit in contact. I always wanted to respect. I didn't know when you wanted to talk about the hobby. But there was always a lot of people saying, I want to interview Mike Kramer. I want to know what he did, why he did, and, and in a good way, as you mentioned with all your innovation. What was the impetus for finally saying, okay, approximately 20 years after Pacific stops producing cards, why is now the time to produce the book? Rich, I planned all that. The longer you stay out, the more interesting you get. No, I'm just okay. kidding. <laughs> but when I got cancer, I went through years for the treatment of chemo. And it was my kids and grandkids that sat with me and wanted to hear stories about Pacific and what I did back then, even the fishing stories. They kept saying, write a book. It's so interesting. And I couldn't do much of anything else except sit in a chair. But I could think and I could do some research. And I thought, I got nothing to do. I might as well write a book and try it. Once I started, I realized that it was flowing out of me, the information. And about a year later, I had an actual manuscript, my story written down, and I looked at it and said, somebody might want to read this. Then a couple of collectors got a hold of me when I sold some of those Kramer Choice acrylic holders on eBay because I had them sitting around in my garage and I had to get rid of them and said, boy, you're the guy we've been looking for years. We want to talk to you. And one of them flew out to talk to me, Matt Burroughs. And he sat right there and said, this is so interesting. We want you to write a book. Tell us all about Pacific. And so I said, okay, that spurred me on too. And when I got finished, I got it edited and the thing was put in a book form. I sent it to a publisher, recommended to me, and they gave me a contract within a few weeks. I've heard that doesn't happen in the publishing business. You wait years and years to get a, 
uh, book publishing contract. And it came about just like most of my life has been, where things happen and the fun stuff comes my way. And well, why your book is published by McFarland, if I remember correctly. That, that's exactly right. Yes, McFarland does a ton of baseball and sports-related books. If you ever go to a Saber National Convention, McFarland will have a table selling a lot of their books. So you found the right publisher for your book without trying. I don't know if you were trying, but however you got associated with McFarland, it was the perfect place for you to be. They are very hobby and very sports-related conscious. They actually got recommended to me by a publisher friend who, who said they do my type of book and they also have a giant network of United States libraries that they get the book into 17,000 libraries out there and they get the book into most of them from what I'm told now, the, you've owned just about every card you probably ever want to have including a Wagner yes what card did you own that, that got you the greatest other than the Wagner which is a pinnacle for most people as long as they can afford it. When you were collecting, what card did you say, this would be my holy grail? Other than the Wagner, I always collected sets. My T206 set, my T205 set, my T3s, all of those older ones as sets were my holy grail. They, the one thing I have, and there's a picture of it in my book, is I have the first baseball card I ever collected that I actually took out of the pack and put in my pocket. I still have it. Although it's all beat up, it's probably my most memorable one. And the one that I would look at and go, this is as beat up it is, as it is, it's still my favorite card. It's great to have a soft spot in your heart for the first card you get out of your packs. And how many people that collect cards actually have their first card ever? I don't think it's very many. Yeah, only I do. It's fun to have it still. Uh, Mike, I was going to say, speaking of soft spots, my podcast is going to be my book because I'm serializing some of my stories with the help of Rich and others. There were a lot of people that helped me along the way, and I somehow think I can articulate it, but I think you had the same philosophy of building a company and a team. You had a no-jerk philosophy, I think, like we did. You really hired a bunch of really nice people who were competent hardworking, and like I say, we're not jerks. They really cared about the hobby. They cared about the products. They wanted to do the right thing. And I know I was blessed in that way. I'm trying to think of an exception of anybody that worked for you that I didn't like. I'm not coming up with anybody. So was that intentional? We just were able to hire really good people, even from the get-go. A lot of them are mentioned in the book and also when they came on board and how they really took a a certain load off my back. In other words, I hired this person and now I could get back to the creative side. And I'm still friends with, I think, every single one of them and still am in contact with almost all of them. But well, Phil Roth and I... podcast with one of your former employers, a employee is a really good one because he's very erudite and Jeff Morris. Oh, yeah. Jeff and I are in constant contact. Phil Roth and I play golf at least once a month. I can't play like I used to physically, but, and my old chief engineer and I had breakfast about a month ago and we're still in contact with almost all of them. And that's real fun. And they've all got good memories and I'll say it, it was just a great place to work. Similar sentiments. You would 
okay, this is the one story that didn't make the cut for the book, or I wish I had put this story in the book. Believe it or not, I wrote 117,000 words, and the book is only about 90. And that was cut down at the request of the publisher, and I know why now. One of the reasons was, if you go to buy my book on Amazon in the Kindle form, it's 358 pages, and as it stands now. The book itself is 53, I believe, but if they would have made it a larger book, that file is hard to download. And so they knew exactly what they were doing. So there's a lot of extra stories, so to speak, that are floating around here that I uh, have printed out, and I don't know what I'll ever do with them. For example, we had great memories of trade shows where fun things happened that basically were just a, a good story but didn't make it in the book. Probably a few things about after what I did after uh, Pacific didn't make it in the book. And so there's a few out there. May I make a suggestion? You've done a great job. Open up your mic. You have a camera. And it will be a limited run series, what we didn't put into the book. The way the sales are the, of the book are going, I may have another edition at some point. If oh, they, okay, the, the full edition. I love it. That's even better. Yeah. I, I didn't know how well it would sell or what the reaction would be, but I'm thrilled with the reception for my book. One of the things I have had is a great life and a good story and the fact that I could actually write a book. And a lot of people have a great story and memories people want to know about, but they don't write a book. And so my story got, is getting out there now. I think you're the first card manufacturer to write a book, too. Probably. And because of what I have done with the collecting side and the wholesale side, and the, and I ran hobby sh uh, shops and put on card shows and then became a manufacturer, nobody did anything like that. Most of the people that ran card companies didn't know what a trading card was, like Jim was saying, when they got hired. And so my whole story kind of blended together and covers a lot of ground as far as collectors, dealers. Car show promoters, everybody can enjoy my book. I used to say the only thing I've never done in this business is work for a card company. You've got that. And like Jim, the podcasts are his books. All the articles I've written over the years that are still available online is my book. And you have a book. So we've all, in different ways, written our story. And we're all lifers in our way. And that's really exciting. And tell us a little more about the family. I know how, how many grandkids do you have now? I have 12. And Sunday, we're going, to, even though it's not my wife and I's 50th anniversary yet, because it it's November 25th, but Sunday, all of my kids and grandkids will be in town and we're going to all get together and celebrate that. Because my oldest son's family, Corey's family, lives in Europe, but they're back in the States right now. That's a great milestone, 50 years, too. Oh, I can't believe it. That many, and the time went so fast. I'm happy to still be here, but time sure did go quick, as we all know. Yes. Are there any questions you want to ask us? <laughs> Jim, I think I should recommend to you to write your book. I think you have a great story that's of real interest to people and would probably sell out there. Like you, I'm semi-retired. I still do stuff, but I get to do what I want to do. In the old days, I did stuff I really enjoyed for the most part. 
But as the company got bigger, I wound up doing stuff that I had to do instead of stuff that I wanted to do. So you've been there. And writing exactly. a book is something I don't want to feel like I have to do. But putting out 15 minutes was every day for a long time that I'm getting enough stories. But I'm realizing after a thousand episodes, there's still a bunch more people I haven't interviewed that I'd love to interact with because it always evokes some new story in me or something about the hobby that I've, oh, yeah, I just remembered that. So I've, I've still got a ways to go. And when it gets all done, is could somebody put it all together into a book? We were doing a podcasts about running shows, since both of us have run shows. I And I got Jim to do a riff about his first Dallas card show in 1975. I don't think he's ever talked about that before. That before, mm-hmm. but it, it was... That I haven't on the podcast because it just didn't come up. It's one thing to be interviewed by an anonymous person. It's another to be asked questions by Rich, who's ultra super knowledgeable and knows what questions to ask. That's the same thing I'm sure you've dealt with. You can unpack it by yourself, but when somebody helps you unpack it, it comes out very nicely. My wife saved all the articles that were written in the newspapers and hobby papers, everything. She cut them out and saved them all. So I use that as somewhat of a model for bringing stories back to me. That I, We can't remember all that stuff, that's for sure. You have to have something to, like you say, drag it out of you. You just can't pull up a microphone and start dictaphoning it and stop at the end of the day and you're done. It's Exactly. It's, I've said in the podcast, I give myself permission to be nonlinear. I'm so structured that I just need to think, hey, Rich and I can riff about something or us guys and then tomorrow could be a different topic. It doesn't have to be all in order. And then somebody could put it back in order if they wanted to. It seems like more fun to just be more eclectic. Talk mm-hmm. about cards, talk about the people, talk about issues. So Rich has been great. We've really had a good time doing this. Like I said, who you're working with is a big deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is. Work with jerks. Then it's just going to be not fun. But 99.99% of the people in the hobby are my friends, I think. Whether I know them yet or not, they either are or would be my friends. The man in the moon.